Most of the male runners figured if any woman wants to run 26 miles in a driving rain, let her run. But veteran Boston trainer Jock Semple thought the whole thing was silly. No, there's enough competition for women. What the heck? Why did they want to tackle the, the, the toughest thing in the world? It's just the women and their stubbornness just want to do something that they're not supposed to do. That's all there is to it. You know that. You're married. That was 50 years ago. In the time since, women have made remarkable progress towards equality in sport. Today, 40% of all athletes are women, and yet women still receive less than 4% of media coverage. The Iron Woman podcast wants to help change that. We interview female professional athletes and other remarkable women making breakthroughs in endurance, sport, and research. So that when I grow up, I will have heroes. I'm Alyssa Gadeski. I'm Haley Chura. And I'm Rosalie. And you're listening to the Iron Women Podcast. Haley, do you know what our most popular Iron Women episode has been so far? I do, Alyssa, because you know I love the numbers, and it goes back to fall of 2017 when we interviewed exercise physiologist Stacey Sims. You are right, and do you know what Stacey Sims has been up to these days? I've heard she's working with Noon Hydration to help formulate some products that have the female endurance athlete in mind. Noon Hydration products have clean quality ingredients and are also non-GMO project verified, which means top quality ingredients for your body and the planet. Noon Hydration offers a range of hydration products for all your workout and recovery needs. My personal favorite is Noon Sport Fruit Punch flavor. What's yours, Alyssa? I like the Noon Sport in the grape flavor and our listeners can go to noonlife.com and shop with a 30% off code of IRONWOMEN to find out their favorite flavor. And don't forget to let us know. That's noonlife.com with the code IRONWOMEN for 30% off. And now, the ladies you've been waiting for, Alyssa Gadeski and Haley Chura. Bye for now. Hi, Haley. Welcome back. I'm so excited to talk to you this week. I'm here in person this week, Alyssa. No voicemails. And I need to hear about your race weekend number two. You just finished three days of racing at the Big Savage Challenge just one week after Ironman Wisconsin. How are you feeling? I'm feeling a little tired. I feel like, unfortunately, well... It's my own fault. So I had a three-hour drive home from Deep Creek Lake where Savage Man is. And so to stay awake during those three hours, my mom had packed some candy for me. (laughs) Thanks, Mom. And in that, she knows I love these Twizzlers. They're not normal Twizzlers. They're like red and yellow Twizzlers that are filled, okay? Mm -hmm. So they're like a special kind of Twizzler. They're my favorite candy. I think I've had those. I have had those on a long ride sometime. They're, they're quality. They're really good. So she gave me like a normal size pack, like not a small travel pack, not like an oversized pack, but like a standard pack. And Haley, I ate the entire thing while I was driving home and I didn't, I mean, whatever, like I mean, I normally. How long is this drive? Are we talking like a thirty-minute drive? No, it was three hours. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay. Okay. That's a good amount of time. So, you know, I was just like mindlessly, you know, going through. And anyway, I didn't sleep. Like I was like so excited to get home. I was like, oh, finally, like my, you know, my own bed. I can like sleep through the night. I'm like so exhausted and so tired. My body's so sore. And then I like could not sleep well last night at all. So I think having done the, the Ironman then the next weekend, three days of racing and then not sleeping very well last night, I feel, I feel like I'm like a little drunk, but I'm not, but it's like that fatigue. So I'm really, really looking forward to tonight's sleep. And I did not eat a pack of Twizzlers going into today. Sugar will do that to you. So tell me about this, this three days of racing at the big Savage challenge. I mean, this was a new race. It had prize money and I mean, it's not a new race. Savage man has existed for a long time. The Savage man it's a 70.0, right? But, and it's known for this crazy bike course, that Western port wall, that if you ride up it without falling over, you get a brick, I think like permanent brick on the road saying that you did that. So, but then they changed things up this year. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So this year they announced that they were still going to have prize money, but it was going to be for three days of racing. So it was no longer going to be just for the Savage Man 70 anymore. It was going to be for all three days and you had to then come in Friday evening for the swim run prologue, which was going to be a 250 meter swim, a one mile run three times. And with proper swim, swim run rules. So like carrying everything, everything you start with, you have to carry throughout and finish with. So that was Friday at 5 PM start. And then Saturday you'd be racing the Savage man 30, which is the Olympic course there. And then on Sunday, you would be racing, you know, the big one, Savage Man 70 in the third day. And so that would be where the prize money and they have like an open and elite field. So pros can race or amateurs can enter into that field and be competitive for the prize money if they want and that sort of thing. So a little bit different this year. And I had raced in 2015 and 2017 only doing the Savage Man 70. So I kind of knew what was coming, but... It was like a whole different beast this year with the three days of racing. Did it make it way harder? I mean, you finished second. You had a great day in the money to have an awesome race right behind Alicia Hill, who is a good friend of mine. So shout out to Alicia for a great day for her. But I mean, how did that feel? Was it, was it significantly harder going into that third day? Really fatigued. I mean, you were really fatigued. You had an Ironman the weekend before too. <laughs> I think, yeah. I mean the fun it's, like stage, you know, I've only only done one other three day race, which was like an ultra running. And the, I kind of remember this from that too, is like the community that this builds is like, cause you're all in it. So there was a group of, I want to say about 20 women and I think like maybe 40 or so men, 40 or 50 men who are doing all three days. And so, I mean, you're all in it together and like you see the same faces, like you're all, you get the same number for the three days. So you're all racked together for all the things you're all like together, you know, just kind of like commiserating in the like, Oh my God, like how are we here again doing this? And so that makes it like really fun. And you just know, like, well, they're doing it too. So it's not like you can really, feel too bad for yourself for like how tired you feel or anything like that. And it's fun. Like there's definitely like a little bit of a tactical aspect to the stage racing, which I, I enjoy. And it's like a little bit more of a, you know, kind of like a thinking game in a way. Cause it's like, do you want to save a little bit of energy here and there? Or do you want to like, you know, like I got so caught up in the swim run. I was like running as fast as humanly possible. And then like in the end, I only gained like 20 seconds over third place. Right. And it's like on one hand, yes, like those 20 seconds could be huge. But on the other hand, for someone like me, who's like, hasn't run under, you know, a 645 mile and Lord knows how long, like 
let alone three times, you know, a week after Ironman, like, did I burn too many matches on that, like swim run kind of thing. Right. So like, it was just fun to really go out. And for me, it was like, again, I haven't raced like that. I haven't raced an Olympic. I don't think since 2014 or 2013, I actually haven't gone back and looked yet, but you know, so to do that different style of racing and to just challenge myself to be like going as hard as I could was really, really fun. And I will say, I think a lot of like my own expectations were just off because I had raced Ironman Wisconsin, you know, five days before. So I could have felt awful. And I would be like, yeah, I'm feeling awful because I raced an Ironman five days ago. Like that's okay. You know, but like, luckily I actually felt pretty good most of the days. And I, um, was able to, was able to hang on for, second place behind Alicia and Liz Bauer was third. And we did, we had like a a really fun weekend of racing together and the women were super, super strong. I think I actually ended like ended up, Alicia was very competitive in the men's field for all three days of racing. And I want to say that given like the people who were racing all three days, I think I beat the third place male. I have to go back and check, but like, I mean, the women were in the mix, like for the overall type of things. So that was really cool. That's impressive. And, and speaking of these back-to-back races, I just noticed that in addition to you racing the big savage challenge, just one week after Ironman Wisconsin, there were a lot of other pro women who were racing, you know, just one week after another race, especially 70.3 worlds. I mean, we had three of the top 10 women from 70.3 worlds racing again, Radka Kalfeld and Emma Pallant came first and second at challenge Davos. Manon Gane was the runner up at Ironman Wales. And then Kinsey Lane, who finished 25th at worlds won uh 70.3 Cheyenne in China. So I admit, like I didn't do a deep dive into all the results, but it feels like a lot of women are racing back-to-back weekends. So I have some ideas about why, why this is happening, but I figure I could, since I have you on the call, like I can ask you, but why, why race back to back weekends? Honestly, I was doing it because I wanted to earn money. (laughs) Um, and this like was a great opportunity. Like the money at Savage Man, there was a $10,000 purse split evenly. And it would, the breakdown is really nice. It's like 1500 to win 1250, a thousand, seven fifty, five hundred for fifth. Right. So, you know, it's not like a big spread. It's not like you really have to win it to like, you know, really bet on that to make all the money kind of thing. And so I just knew that the way my schedule was playing out, like this was kind of going to be the end of my triathlon season for the year. And so I was like, you know, I'm going to be fit. And like, I didn't get the race that I felt I had been training for. So it was kind of nice to have that as a back burner where I really got to like spend the last of what's in my tank from my like weeks of triathlon training that I've put in for the Ironmans. Right. So for me, it was definitely like a financial, you know, it's a tough way to end up earning $2,250 in (laughs) seven days, um, with that much racing, but you know, it's, I, now like am up that much for the season, which is not a bad thing. I, I, that kind of confirms my hypothesis, but, um, yeah, good job women going after those prize purses, but I guess it does make you wonder about sponsorship money and, you know, where the money is coming from in the sport, but congratulations to you on, you know, a fantastic 
seven or eight days of racing in your life. I mean, I, that's, that's super impressive just to get on that many star lines. And for the people who wonder, cause I know everyone likes to ask this. I actually did not go for the wall. So my previous two attempts, I had tried to get up the wall and failed. And I had, I was a little bit scarred from the last time that I tried to do it because I really hurt my hand. So I made the decision going into this year. I was not going to try for it. Um, which was a, definitely a very good decision because I could barely make it up the, the like free wall hills. And so then I took the alternate like detour route around and I, I, this wasn't going to be the year I was going to make it up. So maybe in the future, but kudos to everyone who did. And to all the ladies that were out there racing those three days with us, it was super, super fun. But Haley, what have you been doing since getting back from Nice? Oh gosh, I was hoping you wouldn't ask this question. So actually I've been very unexcitingly, I've actually been kind of sick, um, for the last couple of days, which is just, it has put a damper on my recovery. I had amazing recovery in Nice, as I alluded in my, my voicemail last week coming off the 70.3 world championships there. I, I actually like rented a chair and sat on the beach and just ordered food and it was fantastic. And it's something I've never done after a race and I should do more often, just like put my feet up and like get some rest and just eat and drink everything. But then I came back to the United States and I was like, okay, you know, I'm off vacation. I'm, I'm going to, you know, get back to healthier habits. And of course I like gave up my croissants and gelato and started eating more vegetables and salads. And I think something did not agree with my system. My body decided, my body really wanted to go back to the land of croissants and gelato. And I think I came down with a little food poisoning or something. So my last couple of days have been not very much fun, but I'm coming out of it. I'm feeling better now. And maybe it's got a listen to my body and just eat more croissants. I mean, that's not, or I can, I can tell you that a bag of Twizzlers is not the answer. So croissants definitely seems like (laughs) a good option if that was going well in France, but, uh, hopefully it, it doesn't linger too much longer and you're back to normal. I know that's never, never fun, especially when you can't like pinpoint what exactly it is. So, Oh, I can pinpoint. I know exactly which salad. There's no, I'm like, I should only eat cooked food. I'm like, I cannot handle any raw vegetables. I don't know what's wrong with me, but, um, no, I know exactly what happened, but, um, it happens. It happens even in your hometown, United States. It wasn't, I didn't cook it. I didn't, I did not make myself the salad. It was at a restaurant. So maybe that's a lesson too. I need to do more food at home where I can like make sure everything's all like clean and, uh, you know, you gotta live a little, it just, it happens, I guess. But Alyssa, do we have any mailbag questions this week? Haley, we do. So we have a question that came in from Amanda. And just a reminder to our listeners, we do answer mailbag questions. If you have a question for Haley and I, send it to ironwomenpodcast at gmail.com. And Amanda wrote in and was saying that in the wake of 70.3 World Championships in Nice, there has been a lot of discussion over the use of trainers and the... Oh, about the overuse of trainers and the lack of bike technical ability. Okay, this is where my like no sleep situation. Let me just back up and retry this question again. Okay, so thank you, Amanda. For this is a really good question, and I'm very excited to read it. But my brain and my mouth are on like do you want some different help? planets today? Yeah, do you have it? Um, yes. Well, I can just say so. The gist of Amanda's question is she's saying are trainers overused? Was the you know some of the issues on the Ironman 70.3 
world championships course in Nice. Like we talked about this a little bit going into the race that it was a very technical bike course. I know I can say that I rode it. And so it had, you know, it had a, a big climb and then a very long, you know, 20 plus mile winding descent. And so Amanda's asking, you know, is it because we overuse our trainers? We don't have the bike technical ability. Is that why people had issues on this bike course? And should we be making a bigger push toward technical bike handling skills during our training? So Amanda, my answer for this is that uh, I, I spend a ton of time riding indoors on my Wahoo kicker. And for me, if I didn't have that as an option, I just wouldn't be in the sport. So I'm not going to say that anyone overuses a trainer. A trainer is what gets people into the sport, getting on your kicker, riding indoors, riding on Zwift, you know, riding whatever virtual course you want that keeps more people in the sport, makes it more accessible to people who don't live in the South of France and have roads like that to train on and, or who live in climates like me in Montana who spend, you know, 10 months of the year in winter. So I, I'm very thankful for, for my Wahoo kicker for trainer time. I don't think it's possible to overuse the trainer. I think there are very few courses like Nice on the circuit. Most of our courses are pretty non-technical. I do think it's good to get outside and ride every once in a while. Even just because it's enjoy, you know, it can be fun, you know, and it can be good to get outside when the weather is nice and you can practice some of your bike handling skills that way. Um, and just get more comfortable riding on the road and doing things like clipping in and out of your pedals and just things that are a little bit harder to in practice indoors. But I personally don't believe there's any way I could have done better on that course in Nice unless I had gone to Nice for a month or two ahead of the race and ridden that specific course. I just after having seen it, I don't know if there's any way I could have replicated that in the United States and the demands of that in the United States. And so I don't think it was my, my lack of time outside necessarily more than my lack of time on that specific course. Yeah. I mean, obviously I didn't get to see the course in Nice, but I do think though, like you said, the technical courses are much more rare and the accessibility option of trainers. And like, if that is what gets people into the sport and keeps people into the sport and keeps people like able to ride bikes during the week when they're working jobs too, or just because they prefer being on the trainer or because it's winter or, or, or right. Like if, if that's what it is, then I don't, I agree. I would say there's no way to like overuse a trainer, but I just think it's important that, you know, maybe, like accessibility, I guess, isn't probably the number one priority for a world championship race, right? So they're looking for some challenging courses. Like even when they had it in Chattanooga, right, Haley, they like had changed it up so that you guys even still even there had like a long climb and a descent, right? So that was like a little bit different too, perhaps a little bit more accessible and a little bit more like what people normally would see if they did ride outside and that kind of thing. But you know, I don't, I think it's okay that that like shocked people a little bit for a world championship race. You know, I think it was just something different. And, you know, I heard people saying how difficult it was and how it was shocking and that kind of thing, but I didn't hear anyone like so turned off from it, you know, like I, I think it still generated a lot of buzz and excitement and maybe, you know, got people excited to travel to places like France and get to see different kinds of riding and things like that, um, in places where they have it. But for now, you know, like I know Haley, you will be on your kicker all the time. <laughs> I'll be on my kicker. I'd like to, I'm probably about 50, 50 because I do think for myself, I, like riding outside and I've learned to like race harder because I ride outside more, but that's just like personal preference. I don't, I don't think it has to 
be one way or the other. Yeah, and Amanda asked about tips or tricks or what not to do when preparing for a technical bike course if you only have access to the trainer. And uh, she says she gets access to the trainer but can only make it out to the roads on the weekends. I mean, I think if you're making it out to the roads on the weekends, your technical ability is going to be good enough for most courses. And again, like in France, I think it was mostly like the people who weren't as technically skilled like myself, we just braked more, you know, I just went slower. And like I said last week, I'm so happy that I still went because that I didn't let the, the fear of that technical bike course keep me from being a part of that world championship, from seeing that part of the world, because that was honestly a bigger reward than most any finish. I mean, it was, I, I think that's the other thing. Don't let like people saying things about a certain course make you believe that you can't do it because you can, you might not have your most best, most perfect race ever. But if you're on that start line, knowing you did everything you could in given your constraints in life to be there, then you're going to be really proud of yourself regardless, or that's my own experience. And don't underestimate too. Like if you can't get out for rides on the weeknights, like, you know, even if you just have like 20 or 30 minutes to take your bike into like a field (laughs) and do some like, you know, practicing, like, I know you can YouTube things with skills and like going through cones as dumb as that sounds and like practicing, picking up a water bottle off the ground, like while you're riding kind of thing, you know, um, like that kind of stuff actually does make you more confident on your bike with your skills and just your overall handling. If like your general bike handling is also something that makes you a little nervous going into an outdoor course where you just haven't been riding outdoors a lot. So, you know, that kind of stuff can definitely pay off too. And, um, if you haven't tried it, that could be something to try too. Yeah, but thank you for the question, Amanda. And if anyone else has questions, our mailbag is ironwomenpodcast at gmail.com. And Haley, we have a very exciting interview for everyone this week, right? That's right. I think it's fair to say that Ironman Triathlon would not be the sport it is today without Julie Moss. In 1982, as a 23-year-old college student, Julie lined up for the Ironman World Championships to fulfill the requirements of a class project. Kona was just her third triathlon ever, but five miles into the marathon, Julie found herself leading the race. The lure of that win drove Julie as she maintained her lead through the final miles of the marathon. At mile 25, her exhausted body slowed from a run to a jog to a walk, and then she fell. Again and again, she fell, always returning to her feet until she was forced to crawl the final meters of a Lee drive finishing just 29 seconds behind winner Kathleen McCartney in what is still the closest finish in Kona history. The cameras of ABC's wide world of sports captured Julie's fight to finish and broadcast it to the world, turning both her and Ironman into overnight sensations and inspiring millions of people to try the sport. Now in her early 60s, Julie recently published memoir, Crawl of Fame, details that famous finish in 1982. The book also tells a story of life after that finish, how Julie dealt with overnight fame, how that moment shaped her subsequent triathlon career and everyday life, and what it's like to take big risks and fall short. Alyssa and I are so excited to have Julie as a guest on today's show to talk about her book, share some life lessons from a high-profile athletic career, and tell us about her most recent finish line at the Ironman 70.3 World Championships in Nice, France. We'll have our interview with Julie right after the break. Hey, Alyssa, have you ever come out of a race with a really bad sunburn? I sure have. My very first Kona, I'll never forget. It was awful. 
Well, I think I have a product for you. Zelio Sun Barrier SPF 45 is a zinc-based and water-resistant sunscreen. It's long-lasting, oil-free, and won't sting your eyes. I've used it and it works great. I'll have to try it because I have heard that Zelio's products are designed and tested by champion triathletes like Heather Jackson, Lindsay Corbin, Jesse Thomas, and Rachel McBride. Wait, did you forget someone? Oh, that's right. And our very own Haley Chura. Well, Zelio's products are made with high quality and long lasting ingredients to stand the test of the hottest days, sweatiest training sessions, and toughest elements. They give athletes like us confidence and peace of mind to perform at our best without worrying about our skin or hair products. The products you won't want to train or compete without are the Sun Barrier SPF 45, the Twix chamois cream, swim and sport shower products, and the body lotion. You can use the code IRONWOMEN at teamzelios.com to get 20% off. Hi, Julie. Welcome to the Iron Women podcast. Hi, I'm glad to be here. So this is Haley talking right now, and I wanted to kick off this interview with a kind of funny personal story. So you just raced the Ironman 70.3 World Championships in Nice, France, and you finished a very impressive 10th place in the women's 60 to 64 age group. I'm not sure if you remember, but you and I actually talked briefly as you were walking to the pre-race welcome dinner. I mentioned being excited about this interview, and you mentioned how we both needed to talk about the last 10K of our races. I was a little confused because I've never had a race finish that was quite as memorable as your own, but I agreed to take any advice I could get. Then, as I walked away, I realized you thought I was two-time U.S. Olympian, last year's Kona fourth-place finisher, and most recent, very near Ironman Frankfurt champion, Sarah True. Busted. So busted. It was like such a senior moment. And I had just had a conversation about Sarah. I see you and my mind just went right to her. Even though when you said I'm going to be interviewing you next week and as you walked up, I went, oh, Haley Chura is so confused right now. <laughs> oh, no, I was super flattered just because if any of our listeners aren't aware, this year, Sarah had two very memorable DNFs at Ironman Cannes and Ironman Frankfurt, where she passed out just before the finish line. And it reminded a lot of people of Julie's finish at the 1982 Ironman World Championships. And so I was I was super flattered to be confused with an incredible athlete, but I also really wanted to make sure that I hadn't gotten in the way of a great meeting between you two. So I'm glad, I'm glad you realized it as well. Absolutely. And, um, I, if anyone could make that happen, you guys can, you know, um, you could, uh, your podcast has got massive power. I know if we had planned a little bit better, we'd have Sarah on the line and like ready to, <laughs> to have that, that meeting happen, but we don't have that. So don't worry about that. But I'll I have enjoyed, I did enjoy hearing this story from Haley as well too. Um, okay, but Julie, I'm glad, Alyssa. <laughs> we want to hear more about your race in Nice. And so during your career, you've actually raced in Nice several times, including a second place finish in the Nice world championships in 1984. So how did this year's 70.3 world championships compare to your previous experiences there? People prior to the race saying, you know, the climbs aren't that bad. You can be aggressive um, on the first part. Well, we didn't come close to doing anything. Of the first section of the race we did in 1983 or whatever that was, we didn't do that course. We, we descended some of that. I was shocked. Let's just say I didn't preview the course. A course you should probably have previewed. And, you know, <laughs> it was 
it was one of those ones where I thought, you know what? I know we're going to be climbing from about 10K to maybe 40K. I'm, I'm fit, I'm strong, and I'm just going to be climbing. I don't ever remember being in a race with this challenge, of course. So that was like old dog, new trick. I guess you can really throw something new at, at a woman who's done triathlons for over 35 years. This was new. So I don't think other than the swim and the run, very similar. The bike was just completely different. That makes me feel a lot better hearing you say that. Oh, it was insane. That course was insane. Unless you happen to be a European, a woman who gets to climb those climbs all the time. She gets to go for a ride and it starts with COL, as in cold vents or cold or something. I mean, I, and we're riding up. I'm like, oh my God, that's like Tour de France. Cold vents. We're going up a coal. I mean, we are climbing. And then if you actually looked really high up, you'd see the little ants, you know, streaking across really high up in the air. I was like, oh my gosh, we're going way up there. This is insane. But it also happens to play to not my strengths because I'm a steady climber and I'm strong. And I think I'm, I was very fit for this race, but I'm a terrible descender. Terrible. I mean, to the point where I sort of calculate, well, am I willing to hit the pavement at this pace? Nope. Better slow down. And women were flying by me, taking these insane, you know, um, angles. And so um, I just had to kind of find the positive. The silver lining in descending really slow is that your legs get very recovered for the run. And Julie, how did you feel about like the ambiance of the women's only day at the world championships? Like, did you find that it was different for you to be racing amongst like that huge of a field First, of only women? Yeah. Other than doing like an all women's triathlon, um, and I've done several of those, but to have it be a, a 70.3 race, I almost had to keep reminding myself that it's just women out here. I mean, there are no men coming. It's like, this is just women and how great that was. And just feeling like, oh my gosh, you know, I, I like having slow men to pass. <laughs> I didn't get past. I mean, I didn't get to pass too many people. Let's just put it that way. Everyone was fast. I was proud of the women I was racing with. They were fast, especially coming off the bike and feeling like, oh my gosh, that was a nightmare. And, and, you know, not, not showing off my fitness on the bike at all, but then to come on the run and I'm ready to go now I'm on fire and having every age come flying by me. It was crazy. Julie, I feel like you and I had very similar race days in Nice, but, <laughs> but I do want to circle back to the, to the race in Kona in February of 1982. So our listeners not, might not be aware that the Ironman world championships were originally held in February. And in 1982, the race was actually contested twice to make the move to October date that we are more familiar with today. But on February 6th, 1982, you were a 23 year old college student racing your first Ironman as a way to finish a senior project. And your agonizing crawl across the finish line that was captured by ABC cameras changed your life and the sport. Do you ever get tired of talking about that race? You know what? I don't because looking at some of your past podcasts and talking about equality for women in the sport and there's some inequalities that we're, we're fighting against. Boy, when we started in the sport, 
we, the, I thought, you know, the fact that a woman myself, so I'm a little, you know, I can almost look back at this, you know, sort of ob- objectivity after over 35 years, but I look at it and it's like, it took a woman to put the Iron Man on the map. That is fantastic. And I had that status and clout of being not only a pioneer in the sport, but kind of representing what the heart and soul of the sport was about. And I had the same entree as men for many, many years in the sport because I had that moment. And I think it did a lot to elevate not just um, kind of the visibility of women in the sport, but equity for women in the sport for many years. I mean, it didn't continue, but I think we, I had that first initial experience was very on par with men, if not exceeding all the men that I knew. And Julie, there is surprise a, you. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think the next story we have for people might surprise some people a little bit. <laughs> this is a good one. So there's a part of that crawl of fame story that wasn't specifically chronicled by AB, ABC's wide world of sports. That is simultaneously educational, inspiring, and pretty funny. We've never stopped to think about the recent evolution of sports bras, but in 1982, you actually raced in a bra that hooked in the front and that hook broke in T2. So can can you share that story about what happened I, next? Because my guess is that was something that the men at that time were not having to deal with. <laughs> no, they weren't. And and honestly, the way I was built in those days, I probably didn't need to worry about it either. But we didn't have the tight fitting kits that we have today. I just had a very loose fitting top. And I thought I couldn't imagine when my bra broke in T2 because I was all of a sudden coming off the bike in second place. And that freaked me out, not being coming from a competitive sport background of any kind. I'm coming off the bike second. And all of a sudden, that means now I have to hurry. And so as I'm hurrying, I picked this hook in the front bra because that would be easier to put on. But it was, it broke. And now what do I do? And I'm in this big ballroom change area for the women. And there's two volunteers. And one woman is definitely way too big in the bust. And the other woman looks about my size and I just, I just hone in on her and I just look at her and say, can you please give me your bra? I mean, she just kind of stared at me and then boom, without hesitation, she pulls off her volunteer t-shirt and hands me her bra. So obviously no time to adjust the straps, but I had a bra and I felt like, all right, drama queen that I am right now, I need a bra, give me your bra and now I can go off and run a marathon. Um, it's, it's an Ohana, right? It's a family, the volunteers, everyone that was from the very beginning. That's amazing. But, but in your, but that was above her pay grade. Let me tell you. And I never returned her bra. So shame on me. I hope that woman, I mean, I hope that woman realized what happened to that bra. It became quite famous, but in your book, very appropriately titled crawl of fame, you go into great detail about that 1982 Kona race. And you're also very upfront with the mistakes that you made in the weeks, days and miles leading up to those (laughs) infamous final 15 feet. You overtrained when you should have been tapering. You tossed your Snickers bar nutrition on the bike so you'd look better for the ABC cameras. And you let the sight of eventual winner Kathleen McCartney and her rainbow hair ribbon running eight minutes behind you cause you to panic and push too hard too soon in the last miles of the race. So looking back now, seeing how those mistakes gave you an opportunity to find out how bad you wanted that finish line and to inspire millions of people and change a sport, do you still view view those actions as mistakes? 
No, I mean, n- n- given my experience, which was was zero, I, it was just to me. I look back on it, and I look at opportunities where I gave time away. You know, that's now I'm critical, right? But when I look at that, it it, it all led me to this moment, and this moment that. At 23 years old, I got a piece to the puzzle, the big picture of your life that I don't think I would have had any other way other than the physical breakdown of my body, which means I had to let go of the ego of my, my preconceptions of how women athletes should look and how they should behave. I, I mean, talk about letting go of your ego. When you lose control of your bodily functions on national TV with the camera a couple feet away, you have no room to carry your ego anymore. And what that all distilled down to was this ability to find a part of myself that I never knew existed. This ability to fight for something, to fight not just for winning because I thought it was about fighting for the win, but eventually that wasn't, that was taken away too. It's underneath that, that fighting for winning recognition where you are, you are fighting for your self-worth and your self-worth is worth everything that you can give it. And I kept finding more of myself to give. And it's a feeling. It's connected to your heart. It's not intellectual. It doesn't make sense. But it was a heart feeling that I'm finding a piece of myself I never knew existed. And I am willing to do whatever it takes to hang on to this feeling. And that's what I got at 23. And when Kathleen McCartney passed me 15 feet from the finish line, I was devastated because I thought the win would make up for all the mess that had come before that would erase it somehow and when I knew that wouldn't happen as devastating as it was to kind of have to own every aspect of my journey the good the bad and the ugly I also knew that there was something magical happening in my life that all I had to do was crawl and put one hand across the line and finish what I started and my life was going to change I got that literally crawling to the finish line And Julie, all of these like reflections and everything that you were able to get out of those moments didn't maybe necessarily like come upon you quietly as you were like sitting at home reflecting, you know, on your own after the race, because after you returned home, this obviously caused quite a stir because of the images captured of your finish. The ABC wide world of sports broadcast the race in broadcast of the race was actually moved up two weeks, um, or moved up to just two weeks post-race, right? Which was very quickly after that. And then, so everyone knew within a couple of weeks, there was an award-winning long-form article about you in the San Diego Union newspaper. And so all of a sudden you were like pretty famous in a mainstream level. So often people are dealing with post-race blues and are going through that reflection process kind of on their own individually. And, but your experience is kind of like next level, you know? So how did you process all, you know, now you're able to kind of talk about this in in such a mature way. Right. But you were 23 (laughs) at the time. Like, you know, I'm kind of curious one, how the senior project went, like, were you able to kind of figure all that out to deliver that project? The research, I got a C, A for effort probably, but I got a C on the research or, or, uh, you know, I barely passed on the research and they gave me a C plus, I think. So, but they claimed me, they, they loved me. They had me come back and speak to, you know, basically the entire, you know, physical education student body. So I, 
what I found was I was busy. Like I, and I'm one to say yes. I'm one to dive into the deep end of the pool and figure out how to swim. And that's why I did the Ironman in the first place. That's a part of my innate personality and one of those things that served me well in the race, just being kind of fearless. It's like I didn't fear the Ironman. I just, you know, I just figured out I'd, I'd wing it until, and I had no idea what that really would feel like until I did. But then to kind of be invited to ABC Studios the week after the Ironman air to sit down with the legendary Jim McKay and have this, you know, to have an interview with him and to have him tell me it's some of the most dramatic moments in sports he's ever seen. Um, this is the guy who was commentating from Munich during, you know, the 72 Olympics. So it was heady stuff. And yet opportunities were coming, too. I mean, these great opportunities to travel. Triathlons were literally sprouting up overnight with exotic locations. It was like, are you kidding me? I'm done with classes. I am free to travel. So I was too busy to take myself too seriously until we went about another to the following Kona when I here's where the backlash hit I started to believe my own press I now started to believe I was all that as a triathlete had done better training than I did for my first one but certainly wasn't training at the level of the women who were going to go on and, and create names for themselves in the in the mid 80s and I just blew myself up on the bike but I was kind of believing I was all that. So I had that switch where the ego had a chance to come in and take over. It's like, oh, my gosh, I'm on the cover of magazines. I'm all that. So there was a there was a learning curve, believe me. And that, when I look back on, is painful. You know, it's a little painful to see like what an ass I was at times. But that's part of the learning process. You're young. And I was getting all this, this stuff thrown at me, so I kind of started to believe it. And instead of just being humble and just you know, going back and figuring out how to be a triathlete, it took me several years to kind of work through that process and get to the point where I stopped worrying about what people said about me and started worrying about how to become a good triathlete. And, and humility can be a virtue, but you had some really impressive race results after Kona 1982, February 1982. Yeah. And in 1985, you finished as the first woman and third overall person at Ironman Japan. You handed Ironman legend Paula Newby Frazier a rare defeat at 1989's Iron Distance World Cup Gold Coast Triathlon. And you won Ironman Japan again in 1989. So did you ever feel like your 1982 race overshadowed some of your other really great results? I think as far as the impact on the sport, not, you know, that was not going to get overshadowed. So oh, did it overshadow me? Maybe in a way, maybe, I, I mean, I never felt like I had to go out and do something dramatic just to get attention. I felt like I had to figure out how to become a professional triathlete. And that was really hard coming from zero background. So, and I think because the dates you mentioned from 1982 to 1989, it took me seven years to figure out that journey. And 1989 is the, is the year I look back on and say, I finally figured out how to train and I finally figured out the piece of the puzzle to show up at a race, not worrying about Paula Newby Frazier, just worrying about being really prepared on the day and bringing what, what's my best. All I can control is my best. And in 1989 at the Gold Coast Triathlon, my best was the best on the day. I, I mean, I was pretty, I was still surprised at that as I was racing. Like, Really? Okay, this is this is this is what I'm this is what I'm doing here. This is the pace I'm running, and if Paula doesn't want to stay with this pace, I'm you know I'm going to go with it. And it was really a revelation to have the confidence to come into a race, just wanting to bring your best effort. 
not in comparison to anybody else. That was, that was kind of a, that was a mature moment. And, but it took me seven years to get there. And after that, I, you know, I, I really felt like I'd sort of ticked a lot of boxes early on. I had great results because honestly, the competition wasn't that stiff. I could go to Japan and you know, there'd be very few women in the race. And the fact that I could beat, you know, all the men that was shame on them. And they had to figure some things out quickly and, and, and not have that happen again. Very prideful nation. So I've had some amazing moments, but I would say from 1982, it took me to 1989 just to have a proud moment as an athlete. I've had a proud moment as showing the guts and determination and, and will that, that each of us has inside of us, if we allow it to come out, but it took me seven years to figure out how to be an athlete. And I, it's great because that to me was the springboard to an age group athlete to have that little piece finally fill in. And Julie, you did return to Kona several times, um, after your famous finish. So in 1984, you stopped for medical reasons. Um, in 1989 and 1990, you abandoned your own race to support your then partner, Mark Allen. And most recently in 2017, your race ended after the bike portion. So do you think that not finishing there can sting a little bit more when you're best known for a famous finish? Absolutely. And I mean, I didn't have regrets about uh, any race that I dropped out of until 2017. In 2017, the uh, the woman who spent a career sort of understanding how you get the most out of yourself and how you'll do anything to get the finish line, I screwed it up so bad from the start. I came into 2017 wanting a time posted, a finish posted, a podium finish with a certain kind of time. I thought that was going to be my legacy. Boy, did I get that wrong because I went out so hard on the bike because the winds were strong and I wasn't hitting my time. So I was pushing, pushing, pushing until I blew myself up on the bike. And, and honestly, I, I walked into the C2 and knowing that, of course, I can finish this race. I've had a lot of experiences out there of walking this, the, the marathon. And that's not the question. It's just, I'm just heartbroken that I wanted something so badly that had so little to do with what really an Ironman is about. An Ironman is about bringing, getting the best out of yourself on the day. And I thought it was about a time that really doesn't matter year to year. It always changes with the conditions, right? Of course it matters. And we've had some fantastic people who've done some amazing things. But in my case, as a 60-year-old, as a it really didn't matter if I hit a certain time. And to DNF, the hardest walk was coming out of the transition area, walking up Polani Hill to my sponsor, Hoka, the Hoka One One Marathon course, and telling them I dropped out because it didn't go my way. That talk about humbling. That piece was the hardest one to swallow out of all the years I've been there. But it also was the incentive for me to figure out and quickly that I wanted another opportunity to do it right and. That brought me to 2018, and I feel like I got the – all the pieces came together to have the kind of race that I could say, I'm done racing Kona. It's never going to get any better than this. And it wasn't about the time. It was about all the emotional pieces that came together from racing from a center of gratitude 
and appreciation and feeling like my whatever effort I can put out on the course is saying thank you to an island that changed my life. I know it sounds kind of corny, but that is how it gave me wings. And I really feel like that little piece was the final piece to my puzzle that has now extended through this whole year of having a, a spirit element, not just an intellectual element. And it's more than just emotional. It's a piece that connects you to your highest, the highest part of yourself. And sometimes you have to dig the deepest to find your highest part, but to race with gratitude, no matter what the course gives you, allows you to kind of navigate through all the pitfalls that we can fall into a lot of them and to just come up with your best performance. And I feel like Nice, I was given a course that I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't good on. I got a swim that I was happy with, a run that I was thrilled with, and a race that I, I connected a lot of the dots in my past to the present. And it's like, wow, that's, that doesn't get much better than this. And Julie, so when we talk about, you know, 2017 and you had that big goal, that time goal for yourself to like beat your 23 year old self, you know, and then coming yep. out of that, you realize that was your biggest mistake that you had publicly stated that. So do you think there's a way yeah, to mind. kind of balance like racing with that gratitude and racing for the right reasons, but also kind of holding yourself accountable and, you know, cause saying goals out loud and, and keeping yourself accountable is still a good thing, right? I think it is. No, I think saying your goals, shouting them from the rooftops, if that's what you believe in, that's great. It just was a misguided goal. And I'd been, I'd had so much confidence in my racing and my times were just like right there. It seemed like it was, it was, a, it was an okay thing to wish for. But I mean, uh, now I'd say with gratitude, I'm happy my body is strong enough to hold up and get me to the start line. And yes, I've trained. And the thing is, this is where the confidence, you know, you've trained to maybe hit certain times, but let the day unfold, you know, and to shout out like what you plan to do time-wise in Kona is just, is just so ridiculous because it's, um, it's, you have no idea what the course is going to give you. I happened to get a fantastically fast day in 2018. Haley, did you, did you race in 2018? I did not. I raced in 2017, but I did not race in 2018. But I didn't get to experience the absence of wind in Kona. I I wish I would have. It's like we're all riding unicorns out there. (laughs) (laughs) I love that riding unicorns. Well, we are going to ask you more about that 2018 race here in a bit, but I wanted to go back to your book because you use the term wonder woman frequently throughout your book. And as you describe everyone from fictional childhood heroes like Pippi Longstocking and Nancy Drew to your competitors like Kathleen McCartney, Aaron Baker, Mm -hmm. and Paula newby Frazier, And you even use it to admire women you admire in other sports and in business. So how important is it to you to have role models at any age? Oh, absolutely important. I think uh, Sheree Gruenfeld is one of my role models. And I've told her this for for years and and she had the goal of coming back to Kona um this year in 2019 and and trying to set a 75 to 79 year old age group record and instead she's having um cancer surgery so to kind of see somebody that I've looked up to as being a role model for the next generations uh, and fighting a, a personal challenge and a, and just a battle that you know that I know she's going to win um it kind of puts it in perspective one that we all have to be wonder women for our own lives. And I heard this great quote from Michelle Obama, because when Crawl of Fame came out, her memoir 
she had just come out. I was like, okay, well, I think her book's going to sell a little bit better than mine. But what she said in an interview about her memoir was that we should all find our own stories to be one of the most fascinating. And I thought, she's basically saying it's okay to celebrate your life as being one of the most important lives out there. And so when I say being a Wonder Woman, it's like, that. yeah, I have a lot of Wonder Woman role models, but I also think we all have the opportunity to be Wonder Women. Right. And and finding that finding those things that make us feel wonderful <laughs> every day is really important. And so, yeah, I have like Cherie Grunfeld. She's she's a role model. And I look at what Daniela Reef is doing in the sport. And it's it's beyond Wonder Woman. It's like it's it's crazy what she is accomplishing in the sport. And so I look at all these different people contributing. It's but it's really comes down to the essence of of you you have the opportunity to be a wonder woman for your own life and you better take it and continuing that theme of wonder woman you speak at length about your relationship with Kathleen McCartney the woman who passed you in those last 15 feet in the epic Kona finish and you even dedicated an entire chapter of your book to Kathleen I've heard that the word competitor has its origins in Latin with a meaning of striving together. When you look back at your now 37-year relationship with Kathleen, do you think that it fits that definition of competitor? I think it has. I think it's come to that. There was a point where I didn't appreciate Kathleen's effort in Kona in 1982 to come by me at the, at the last minute. It was jealousy. It was envy. Even though I understood I was getting an amazing piece to my puzzle, I still had to kind of always be, you know, put together with her and feel like there was this comparison made. So it wasn't, it was a rivalry that the media kind of stirred up, but I felt it too. I mean, I really felt competitive with her and not in a supportive, let's come together and make each other a better way. I wanted to beat her, have another opportunity to beat her. And I don't think I got it until I became an age grouper. So I think it was a relationship that started out in such a, uh, uh, just such a vision, you know, the visuals were so strong of that race and to kind of have to relive that video over and over again and see her passing me over and over again. It took years to kind of under, to let go of that. So some of the pieces of being beaten to kind of coming back around in 2012 and accepting that we're in very different places in our life and we could come together as a team and support each other. But it took time. I'm, I'm being completely transparent here. She was not my favorite person at no fault of her own because she's a lovely, sweet woman. And I almost felt guilty disliking somebody who was so generally nice, but it was because of that moment. I felt something was taken from me. I hope that doesn't sound terrible, <laughs> but that's how I felt at the time. Yeah. I think it's super refreshing just to know that relationships can change and can grow over time as we change and grow. Yeah. I think that one needed to take some time. And for me, especially, and I mean, we had to be very nice to each other in public, but that didn't make it easy for me to sort of, you know, wish her the best when I, I felt like, I felt very opposite for a while. I mean, and of course, then as we both, you know, became, I think that she was out of the sport by, you know, within a few years and I was still in it for much longer than she was. So, but then we've come back at different times in our lives and it's funny, we've synced up at different times in our lives. And I love the fact that in 2012, 
we came together as women, women who had had personal challenges that we'd overcome, women who'd had children. We had so much more in common than just 1982 by 2012. So you're right. I'm glad that you, you, you see it as refreshing because I really appreciate our friendship now because it, it has been hard fought. So Julie, our paths actually crossed before just a few weeks ago in Nice, but at last year's Women for Try breakfast following Ironman Maastricht in the Netherlands, um, we, we were at this breakfast and our table's conversation turned to gender equality. And I remember you actually being surprised to learn we still didn't have equal slots for male and female professional athletes racing in Kona. And the pro qualification system has changed since then. And we, as professional women, now have a path to equality by increasing female pro participation at certain Ironman events. But as we look at the 2019 Kona start list, um, as, as long as I last checked it, I believe it included 57 men and just 44 women. So you spoke earlier about the origins of triathlon and its gender equal start, how you felt like you had equal footing with the men. The course distance has always been equal. The prize money has you know, mostly been equal. And you even called it the first mainstream sport after Title IX. So as someone who has been in the sport since those very early days, do you have any advice for, for us, for Alyssa and myself and our listeners on how we get to equal slots for men and women in Kona? Well, obviously, I mean, I, I still think it's interesting that Iron, the Ironman Corporation is challenging the women to boost up their numbers so that they can have equal slots. That's BS, right? Because you shouldn't have to prove to them that you have the ability to race as hard as the men. And there's certainly enough pro-women out there that they could easily fill those same numbers as the men. So I disagree with the concept. It's like it's demeaning to say, you, we're giving you a path to equality, but you have to go out and do all the work. Why do the women have to do all the work when the men get it as a given? Does that make sense? I'm wrestling with that because, this again, you're my source of information, Haley. You're just telling me right now that this is the new path. Here's what I think, and this is just, this is random, but you've got a woman who's got a lot of clout in the sport right now, Daniela Reese. Let me just say, let's just say, for, this is just between you and me and all your many listeners, but what if Daniela sort of said, took a stand and said, you know, I've won five world championships in the 70.3. If she goes on to uh, win a, a fifth Ironman world championship in a row, what if she said, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not coming back unless you get this thing right. You know, she's got that kind of clout right now. And I, not that I would ever suggest Daniela needs to do that. I mean, she obviously, she's, she's got her, her game dialed in and she knows what she's comfortable with. But that's just an example of when you've got a high profile woman to kind of take the reins or to ha involve her in a conversation, you know, in the off season and to sort of say, get, you know, to rally, we're looking to you to kind of maybe invest in her the kind of responsibility that comes with greatness. So just an idea. So how do I, what, how do I think, I just think the women shouldn't be under the burden of having to prove that they're worthy. And I think maybe some, um, some interesting PR could happen to kind of get the attention. Let's just say my race in 1982 was PR. It, one of their golden moments. And it was it it gave the sport clout that it didn't have. So I think we can be clever and hardworking and to kind of use this, these natural media outlets that we have to kind of make change 
And I don't have a specific suggestion. I just know when we rally around some of the top people in our sport who do get that kind of attention and clout, it can be a nice way to bring positivity to the sport, i.e. numbers for the women, equal numbers. Do you think a lot of your ability to encourage others to do that comes because like, again, in hindsight, you know, like putting yourself in Daniela's shoes, like obviously it's a much harder thing to do probably right when you're at the top of the game and you know, like you, you don't want to be, you know, start the domino that pushes everything over from there. Right. No, so, no. I'm just saying an example, not like she should threaten to boycott the race if they don't make it even, but just that if she, to engage her in a dialogue that might then get, that might be a broader representation for all the women. I mean, talk about outspoken women in triathlon summit. She'd be pretty amazing to have as one of the participants of the summit. And I think sometimes we forget to include people who are in that, you know, she's, she's doing her thing. She's winning races, but she's also a woman who's benefited from all the hard work of the women that have come before her. So I just think engaging the stars of the sport offers a certain spotlight. Well, we hope Daniela is listening. Maybe uh, we will try to send this, <laughs> this interview directly to her. <laughs> I'm just saying she, with greatness, with getting so much out of the sport, and, and I see her, she's giving back to a developmental team. She gives back by her appearances. She's very personable. When she allows that time, when she allots that time to meet with the public, She's very open. She's very personable. And I just think that she might see this as something that's very valuable to put some time and energy into supporting the other women in her sport. It's always worth asking. Why not? It doesn't hurt to ask. <laughs> exactly. Julie, going back to the 2018 race in Kona that we, we referenced earlier, but you returned to Kona and you did finish that race. You crossed the finish line on a Lee drive in third place in the 60 to 64 age group. And I think you were only like a little over 90 minutes behind your son, Mats Allen, who also raced. So can you tell us about, you know, in the context of your whole career, what was that finish line experience like? The top probably. I mean, I think that other than personally at 23 in 1982, this one rates right up there with it. And it, it was a combination of sort of passing, not a legacy, but allowing my son to kind of have an, to see that he's having an experience, not allowing him, but allowing to be there to witness him having an experience of his very first Kona Ironman and to have been there with him, you know, the months earlier when he qualified for the race and watching him, sort of take those steps, knowing the connectedness to our family and how much this has meant to his father, Mark Allen, and to me. And to kind of know that this is, this is what shaped us. This is what we spent our time and energy. And to this day, we're putting our time and energy into the sport. For him to have a direct experience of that and to come to the finish line and see him waiting there, with the medal outstretched to see Mark Allen standing with him. And we have not had the most cordial of divorces. So to see that support for Mark giving that support to Matt and Matt's giving that support to me. And as much as I wanted to run across that line and, and run and embrace my son, I took the moment and I, and it was like divine intervention. Something said, stop, turn around 
stand on this finish line and look back down Ali'i Drive, a, a, just a perspective you don't usually get because you're so focused on getting the line, look back and soak up some of this energy, soak up all of those memories or try to, and everything that it's taken to get to this finish line. And now, now that I've soaked it up and it felt like I was standing there for a few minutes, it was just probably a few seconds. And then to turn and walk down the ramp and get a hug from my son and then get to get a hug from Mark Allen, I felt like that was closure on so many personal levels. And the fact that I finished third was the least important of those pieces. But it was nice too. (laughs) (laughs) It's icing on the cake, right? So yeah, yeah, I can't argue with that. And you waited 35 years after your crawl of fame to write your memoir. So why share your story now? And can you tell us about the writing process and how that was for you? Sure. I had a co-author, Robert Yaling, and he had written a book uh, that I, I really enjoyed. He's also a high school classmate of mine. So it was like a nice little kind of combination. Got a hold of him on Facebook, congratulated him on his book. Um, and then I just sort of, it hit me like people have been saying to me for years, decades, when are you going to write a book? And usually it's after a personal appearance and I tell some stories and, and I connect with people in storytelling. I didn't have the confidence to think I could translate that to being a writer. Writing is a very difficult thing to do. And so when I reached out to Robert and I said, it's one of those things, if I don't tick this box, I'm going to be bummed. I'm going to regret that I never took the time, energy to either connect with the right co-writer and get these stories down. So our collaboration was really about me talking to them. We'd do interviews and then I would record sessions on my own. It was about telling stories and about weaving those together was Robert's job. And I always knew I didn't want it to be just about me. I loved the book Born to Run by Chris McDougall. And he would go off on these tangents and tell these stories about different people in different settings. And and I loved that. And so I always knew that that was sort of a concept that I wanted was that it, it can't be all about me or it's that would just, uh, I would find that boring. So I don't want the reader, if I'm going to find it boring, I'm thinking the readers might get sick of me too. So I knew it was going to have a different stories woven into it. And once Robert and I agreed on kind of the concept, it was like, I would create the little patches and send them to him. And he created the quilt and he put it together. And I feel like that was the best process for me because I, I would have spent too much time agonizing over, you know, sentence construction. I mean, I would have, it would have driven me insane and I wouldn't have gotten it done. And so I needed somebody, I needed a coach and just the way athletes, triathletes now will hire a coach to expedite their whole experience. I needed a coach. And so he was my writing coach and basically coach manager, you know, agent, all of that woven into one. And I got to just tell stories, which is what my strength was it emotional to go, you know, go through your past and, and to put it all together? <laughs> Very emotional. And just the idea of navigating. And I mean, I already knew because that's kind of my personality. I knew I would be pretty transparent and I would, have, I would tell everything that was on my side of the street to tell. So I had to be very careful not telling my son's story 
not telling, you know, Kathleen's side of the story, not telling my ex-husband Mark Allen's side of the story and allowing, um, that was a, that was, that was some really interesting navigation to be able to say, this is my story to tell, but I can't put words in somebody else's mouth. I can't, I have to be very clear about what is my side of the street. And that's why Kathleen got her own chapter. I mean, I, I, she can tell her side of the story. And she's been a, somebody who's just integrally we, woven into my life. And I felt like she deserved as the Ironman champion and being overlooked many times as the champion. It was her chance to sort of have her moment again. And being the age I am now, now I can be gracious. Where I was kind of stingy back there, you know, 23, <laughs> when, when she beat me, I can be gracious now and much more generous because she is a big part of my life. And I don't think my life would have turned out the same if I had won. I just, if I had made it look easy and won, I don't think, um, this, I think the sport would have not been the same and it needed somebody to put some heart and soul into it and not make it look like it was a given. And, you know, that we're, you know, that I was not just, you know, an Amazon queen out there, you know, just destroying the field, because when you have that kind of precision and perfection, sometimes it looks, it, it doesn't relate to people. You give them the girl next door with the trucker hat and the bra strap falling down, who just kind of loses her shit on national TV and people go, Oh, wow. You know, I can, I can kind of relate to her. So I think the idea of writing those stories was allowing my story to come through and allowing other people's stories to be told by them personally or to be handled with great care. Well, Julie, we've loved hearing your stories. And for our listeners who haven't already read your book, this conversation has barely covered all of the great experiences included in Crawl of Fame. For anyone who hasn't read it yet, what is the best way for our listeners listeners to get a hand on your book? Okay, I'll tell you the cheapest way. <laughs> Amazon. Amazon's got it um, for the lowest price I've seen. So that's a really good way is just to go to Amazon. Great. Well, thank you so much, Julie. We've, we've loved this conversation. A kind of a We've learned a lot about our history and also been inspired by your continuing success in the sport. And I did love seeing you in Nice. So thank you again for coming on the show and best of luck with whatever is next. And thank you for This is such a well-prepared interview. You just did an amazing job and I'm looking forward to hearing more of your podcast. Wahoo is dedicated to the journey of every athlete from a sprint to Ironman. Wahoo is with you every pedal stroke, every stride, and every trying moment with the commitment to make you better. As endurance athletes themselves, Wahoo provides an ecosystem of products, including kicker smart trainers, element bike computers, and ticker heart rate monitors to provide exactly what you need to reach the finish line and smash your training goals. We'll be sure to include the Amazon link to Julie's book, Crawl of Fame, in our show notes, or it's likely you can pick it up or order it from your local bookstore. And if somehow you haven't seen it or it has been a while, we highly encourage you to take a few minutes to watch her famous finish on YouTube. You'll quickly see why Julie has inspired countless people to challenge their limits in sport and in life. And as always, a continued thanks to our com community of patrons that is growing every week. We appreciate you. And if you are interested in joining that community at patreon.com forward slash live feisty, joining helps us to keep creating this content and getting it out to you every week and doing fun things like the Facebook Live, which will be coming up in Kona in a few short weeks here. 
Alyssa, I hope you get some sleep and recover from your incredible last four weeks of racing. And I will talk to you next week. Bye, Haley. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please subscribe, like, and comment on iTunes. My favorite podcast hosts are Alyssa Gadeski and Haley Chura. My favorite editor is Aaron Hamilton. The Iron Women Podcast is a live feisty media production. We want to thank our sponsors and partners, Noon Hydration, Wahoo Fitness, Zelios, Fen Coffee, FTC Nutrition, and Smash Fest Queen.